0: Welcome to Discovering the Old Testament, a series of podcasts exploring one of the primary sources of the Judeo Christian tradition. I'm your host, Dr. Sheldon Greaves. Welcome to this, our fiftieth and final episode of Discovering the Old Testament. It's only fitting to take a quick moment and thank our many listeners and supporters who have been with us since our first episode in November of of 2013, about two years ago. Since that time, I've heard from some of you, and I hope to continue hearing from listeners in the future. I have no plans to take these episodes down, so I do hope you will continue to tell your friends about this podcast. At this point, I'm not sure what will come next, at least as far as podcasts go. Instead, let's press on with today's episode, which will be on the intertestamental period. We've mentioned this period a a number of times already this period between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New Testament is sometimes called the 400 years of silence, but I should point out that it's Christians who tend to use that term. In fact, these years were anything but quiet, nor were they merely a warm-up act for a Christian main event. This period, from roughly the end of Nehemiah's prophecy until the start of the first century CE, was a time when the Old Testament canon was still forming, as we've already seen. It was also a shakedown period, if you will, to see how the Jewish people would employ this new invention of canonical scripture and a law that they believed carried divine sanction. The Jewish people had to struggle with a number of other innovations, although that may not be the best word to use. There were waves of new ideas and bodies of thought, first from their Babylonian captors, their exiled neighbors from around the Near East, and then Zoroastrianism, thanks to their benefactor Cyrus the Great, who allowed those Jews who wished to return to Jerusalem and build its temple with his blessing and financial backing. After the Persians came the Greeks, when Alexander spread his empire and his program to Hellenize the conquered territories by promoting Greek language, government, philosophy, religion, and culture. Judaism did not emerge from this intellectual and cultural barrage unmarked, unchanged, Babylon pushed Judaism to assert a highly positive view of humanity in contrast to the grim, almost nihilistic views of Babylonian religion. Jews in the exile also largely abandoned the idea that salvation lay in military liberation. The field of conflict changed from combat to intellectual disputation before a divine judge. From Zoroastrians they acquired a belief in end times, of God as a source of good, with an evil counterpart, Satan, responsible for pain and misfortune. They gained an interest in demonology and demonic possession that had not existed before, and a strong interest and belief in an afterlife and resurrection Zoroastrian beliefs in human precursors to the final end times formed the basis of Jewish messianic ideas. Up to that point, Messiah was an adjective applied to someone with a special purpose, but not as a title for someone meant to save the world, let alone claim divine parentage. As some Jews worked to rebuild their spiritual center, other Jews went elsewhere and set up their own communities in the far reaches of Alexander's empire. This turned out to be a vital proving ground to see whether the new Torah-based Judaism could maintain its cohesion and identity in the face of permanent diaspora. The nature of this new empire, with a more or less single government spanning huge distances, and a new common language, Greek, and the additional political stability found in this new world, made communication and commerce between these communities practical. Meanwhile, back in Palestine, instead of settling the intellectual and ecclesiastical terrain of Judaism, the Torah and its interpretation spawned several schools of thought, due mainly to the different strains of ideas that had found their way into Judaism. We learn of several different sects, Josephus calls them philosophies, such as the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes that arose during this time. He also mentions the Zealots, but there were arguably many other groups and offshoots, each one grappling with their own issues and how to address them. Torah-based legislation that offered a safety net to the less fortunate was systematically dismantled or loopholed into irrelevance. The very thing that these laws were designed to prevent, the accumulation of great wealth and power in the hands of the few, accelerated. With the tacit assent of the government, wealthy landowners used various ploys to separate family farms from their owners, who had owned the land for generations these displaced persons often ended up in the cities desperate for work starving in the streets the intertestamental period was also famously the age of apocalypse even though the religious authorities had drawn the line ending prophetic utterance with nehemiah books castigating the status quo or pertaining to the future especially a cataclysmic future of cosmic once-and-for-all conflict and significantly who would lead it the apocalyptic vision was a natural reaction to what was happening in judea the maccabean revolt may have given judea political independence at least for a little while but it also had major negative effects the temple priesthood, already corrupt, was taken over by an even more corrupt house of Hasmon, and further politicized. Worse, the lessons learned so bitterly on the limits of military force as a path to national liberation were forgotten in the unlikely victory of the Maccabees over the Seleucids. This new militancy found its way into the apocalyptic literature, already bursting at the seams with predictions of divine whoopass to be unleashed on evildoers. It also informed countless revolts and political movements against the Romans, almost all of which invoked messianic claims, and none of which ended well. This is not really surprising. With the disparity in wealth, neglect, and oppression of the lower classes, ecclesiastical chaos among competing sects, foreign domination by pagan armies, and rampant corruption, the times cried out for justice and change. It was the perfect time for a Messiah. We also see an interesting bifurcation of Jewish thinking. The law, for all its advantages, had limits. Situations emerged for which the law had no answer, and so a body of tradition, Oral Torah, grew up around it, providing commentary and depth to the law. Much of this was later written down as part of the Talmud in the first century CE. In all fairness, we should also note that the Jewish canon was still in a state of flux and would not reach its final form until the fourth century CE so in that sense we really can't talk about the end of the old testament time until a couple of centuries after the new testament books were written history is nothing if not ironic but there was a second trajectory in jewish thinking that treated law in a different way recognized that legalisms can take on a life of their own, and that they do not always distinguish between legally correct and what is good based on experience or common sense. This was the approach of instruction by narrative, story, and parable. This is not to say that legal Judaism did not make use of parables or stories, far from it, but those stories had to have some connection with a legal text, however tenuous, in order to be considered authoritative. This second path did not t- carry that requirement, only that listeners have enough life experience to recognize the point and importance of a parable when it revealed itself. We see this second approach in the New Testament. While it's obvious that everyone mentioned in the Gospels is familiar with the Law, One does not hear a lot about it, except as an object of disputation used to make a larger point. Gospel teachings are wrapped in stories and parable. The epistles of Paul, real and otherwise, do not engage in legal disputation, and this from Paul, a Pharisee by training. Thus emerged the division of experience through the eyes of law, via Talmud and Mishnah, versus the experience of God, expressed in gospel and parable. Through all this, the mandate remained. The world must change. With God's help, it must be done. While the Torah has always contained an imperative to heal the world, and assumes a definition of charity that is better rendered as justice, the debate raged through the intertestamental period over what many saw as a world on a deteriorating trajectory. It was not enough to ask people not to sin. People needed answers. There must be a reason why people behaved badly. What was it? with a relatively new version of Satan or the devil, he became a common culprit. Others blamed Eve. Still others, the mischief of fallen angels. Greatly expanded angelology was another artifact of this period. Or people blamed sin on the fact that the world basically sucks and is an evil place. We even see precursors in Second Esdras to original sin, that humanity somehow inherited their sinfulness from Adam. With the prevalence of sin came the need to expiate it. Tobit speaks of giving alms to the poor to expunge one's sins. Maccabees claims that those who were martyred by the Seleucids on behalf of their faith can expect to have their sins purged. Martyrdom is something else we don't see very much in the Old Testament, but it becomes important in this period and obviously remain so. Set against a world of trouble and temptation, we also find a remarkable set of ethical teachings found in both the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, and in early Rabbinic works. While the Torah had the sanction of canon, nonetheless opportunities for ethical speculation and teaching remained wide open. It is here that the injunction, Love your neighbor, begins to assert itself with increasing visibility. True, these teachings are found in the Torah, particularly in Leviticus, but they are overshadowed by other issues that were deemed to have special gravity for ritual and purity purposes. Books like The Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs pick up the slack, repeatedly in this document we find the exhortation to love the Lord and your neighbor. This section from chapter 6, verses 3 and 7 should ring a bell. Love ye one another from the heart. And if a man sin against thee, speak peaceably to him. And in thy soul hold not guile. And if he repent and confess, forgive him. But if he deny it, do not get into a passion with him lest catching the poison from him he take to swearing, and so thou sin doubly. And if he persist in his wrongdoing, even so forgive him from the heart, and leave to God the vengeance. We also find the golden rule in the book of Tobit, Quote, Watch yourself, my son, in everything you do, and be disciplined in all your conduct, and what you hate do not do to anyone. On the rabbinic side, we have the Pirkei Aboth, or Sayings of the Fathers, which was another major source of material for the Talmud. These sayings include many wise and sometimes witty observations on living a righteous life, but through it all are repeated calls to study Torah and become fluent in the law until it becomes part of you. There are many other sayings, proverbs really, that recall wisdom literature, but still take on the form of a rule or maxim. One of the most extreme examples of a law-based approach to confronting evil was the Essene community at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were written and later discovered in 1947. Acknowledging with reason that the purity and sanctity of the Jerusalem temple had been fatally compromised from their isolated desert community they attempted to replicate as far as possible the temple rites not only for themselves but in the belief that by doing so they were fending off the retribution of a vengeful god from Judah at least temporarily until the time when jerusalem and its temple should be destroyed prior to a rebuilding by the Essenes. As they predicted, the temple was destroyed by the Romans, shortly after they had destroyed the Essene community at Qumran. Among their rules and regulations, they seem to have missed one of the sayings of Rabbi Hillel in the Pirkei Both, Do not separate yourself from the community. Meanwhile, the drive to change the world also put dreams of messianic liberation into overdrive, and a string of messianic movements. Fueled by apocalyptic fervor, nearly all of these were violent at some level. In many cases it was mere thuggery wrapped in a pious mantle. It was that anticipation of a coming figure or figures before the cosmic end-times that made this idea so useful both to insurgents, honest reformers, and pious frauds. Judaism eventually repudiated the apocalyptic tradition and, with a few painful exceptions, has managed to steer clear of apocalyptic end-time thinking because it never ends well. As a rabbi acquaintance of mine once remarked, when you hear someone start talking about the Messiah, it means a lot of people are about to die. The apocalyptic books, for the most part, were rejected from the Jewish canon, although they continued to receive attention from Christians, anticipating their own cosmic upheaval at the Second Coming. There is another important point, and that is, just as Persian and later Greek ideas infiltrated into Judaism, so Jewish ideas likewise spread, ironically, as a direct result of Hellenism. The Hellenistic ideal was one of exploring ideas, especially ones from ancient cultures such as the Jews. In fact, the Greeks had a certain respect for Judaism on account of its antiquity, and it was at their request, as well as the need for Greek-speaking Jews, that we got the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Scriptures. Fortunately, this translation also gave us the intertestamental ideas found in the books of the Apocrypha, which otherwise would have been lost. But, thanks to the Septuagint, Jewish ideas not only spread far and wide, it formed the scriptural basis for early Christianity. For this reason, rabbinic Judaism grew to regret that that translation was ever made, some saying that the Septuagint was as great a tragedy for the Jewish faith as was the making of the golden calf. But that is the way of holy writ, particularly when it carries the weight of canon. It does not always behave as we expect it to. It is up to each new generation to find its own way through the text, to wrestle with it and its ideas, its idiosyncrasies, its challenges. The Hebrew Scriptures remain a remarkably robust body of thought and ideas. It is a true scale model of the human condition. It has been observed that the path of the holy begins when one runs out of answers, but meanwhile. The Old Testament has always been there to ensure that we never run out of questions. I cannot close this session without expressing my deep and profound appreciation for everyone who has encouraged and supported this podcast since it began two years ago. It has been a remarkable experience for me. I enjoy hearing comments and questions from others who have listened along the way. Obviously, we have not been able to go as deep as we might, but I hope that you have enough of a sense of the tools of scholarship that you can approach the Old Testament and the New Testament with fresh eyes and draw new insights. To each of you, thank you for participating on this journey. I wish you peace. Discovering the Old Testament is supported by the donations of our listeners. To make a donation, visit our website at lafkospress.com. That's L-A-F-K-O-S-Press.com. Discovering the Old Testament is a production of Lafkos Press of San Jose, California. Join us again next time as we continue our journey through the mysterious and exotic world of the Old Testament.